The doctrine of discovery is the current system of laws and policies that justify the removal of land from indigenous peoples. These laws are rooted in church doctrines that originated in the 15th century. Together, we will uncover this deep structure of colonization that systematically deprives indigenous peoples of human rights. I'm Sherry Hostetler, and I help start a coalition of Anabaptist people of faith that seek to dismantle the doctrine of discovery. I'm also a Mennonite pastor in San Francisco. And I'm Sarah Augustine, and I also help start this coalition. As an activist and scholar, I'm the descendant of the Tewa people and a displaced person. This is the Dismantling the Doctrine of Discovery podcast. Support from this podcast comes from Bethany Theological Seminary in Richmond, Indiana. Bethany offers in-person and distance learning options and generous financial aid so that students can answer a call to ministry and service without taking on additional debt. Students choose from a variety of graduate certificates and degrees, including the brand new Master of Arts in Spiritual and Social Transformation, combining faith formation with professional growth. Learn more at bethany.edu slash M-A-S-S-T. In this episode, we feature questions from you, our listeners, for Sarah, especially questions you might not feel comfortable asking. So here we go with our first edition of Ask an Indian. Hi, Sarah. Hi there, Sherry. Thank you for being willing to, uh, well, proposing and being willing to do this episode. Um, I'm excited about it. Yeah. I think it's a great idea, and I'm just so glad you're willing to do it. So shall we just dig in right away? Yep, let's do it. Okay. Here's our first uh, listener question. Do native calls for land return mean that I have to give up my home? If every settler were to give up their home, there just simply aren't enough uh, Native Americans to live in all of those homes. I guess that's kind of a a tongue-in-cheek statement in that you know, I recognize there's different understandings of how we would of, of land use as well. But, you know, one of the things that um, John Stace, who's a member, <clears throat> dear friend and a member of our coalition, Dismantling the Doctrine of Discovery Coalition, one of the things that he says is that, you know, it's, it's unreasonable to believe that um, all land would be returned um, to native people, given that we have 350 million people in the United States now, but <clears throat> it's unjust to believe that you would, you would return none of it. And so, you know, I appreciate that perspective. And often when native people are talking about land return, they're talking about, um, uh, land that is, um, that is not sort of in the, in, in, in the arena of private property. So for example, federal land, um, uh, land related to the national parks. I mean, many people don't realize that national parks, the, the lands that were established as nas- national parks, many of them were inhabited by native people when they were established. And this isn't just true in the United States. This is around the world. As parks are created, you know, what are considered to be wild spaces, there are people that are living there who have been the the historical um, tenders of those lands um, that are removed in order to to make that wild space. So the logic here is, if we're going to have wild space, people can't be on it because people destroy um, wild places, and that's just not the case. You know, Native American people have been living in balance 
with their environment um, from their point of view from the beginning of time. So, um, hey, can I say something? Can, sure. I'm sorry. I, I wanted to say that maybe you were going to continue to say something about the parks because I wanted to give an example mm-hmm. of that. Please, yeah. Um, I just got back from a weekend in Death Valley with some dear friends and I read about, okay, who, whose land are we on and exactly what you happened, what you said happened there. Um, first white people came in and wanted to do mining of borax. So that was originally like why folk, why, uh, the Shoshone band that was living there started to get displaced. And then, but then when they kind of, that didn't work out as well as they'd hoped, they basically wanted to get tourism in there. So Death Valley becomes a national monument in 1933. And they are trying to figure out like, how do we get these, this, these Shoshone people off this land? And they, the Shoshone folks resisted and resisted and resisted. And eventually I think in like, I don't know when it was the, uh, the civilian conservation Corps basically built a 40 acre reservation slash village for them, like maybe a mile from death Valley national headquarters. You know, when you go there to the national park, you can see it. And basically that's where they are. And they're still fighting to get some land back, which they did somewhat recently. But it was exactly what you said. And I, when I was there, I thought, what would this be like if the 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 Native Americans who have tended this incredibly arid land for so long and been stewards of it for so long, what if they were they want if they wanted to do tourism? Like, what if we then you know we could go there and enjoy Death Valley, but we we, we would be doing it because it would. We would be we would be the guests there of them, not of National Park Service. Or maybe they decide they don't want to do tourism. But it was just a very it was exactly what you said, um, and it really was, it really was. It bothered me that I was there in this national park land, and that was the story behind it. Right, and and you know the other, I guess the other example that I would want to talk about, and I think there are many examples. Um, so I'm just going to talk about a few. The other is land that was that was um, retained by indigenous people by treaty, and I want to be really careful how I describe that because that land, the the the, the indigenous homelands of native people, were not given by the federal government. Um, their ceded territory, that is to say, the territory that that the native people ceded was given to the federal government. Do you see what I mean? Not the other way around. And so that land that um, that was retained by Native people that has been historically and continues to be eroded by pr- land privatization um, is also land that could be returned. And so I'm talking about reservation land. So many people don't realize that um, that many reservations, the majority of people that live on them are people from the dominant culture. And so much of the land there is owned by people in the dominant culture um, or by the state or federal government. And so uh, returning that land is crucial. And so, you know, I have a very concrete example. As you know, I live on the um, the homeland of the Confederated Bands and Tribes of the Yakima Nation. So I live on the Yakima Reservation and I leave, live on deed land. So deed land means that um, it was land that was um, liberated during the time of um, of the Allotment Act. And by liberated, I mean um, once all of the land was allotted, um, 
this land was sold as surplus to settlers. So the land that I live on has always been deed land since settlers have been in that valley. Um, it wasn't sold ever by a native person to the to the federal government or somebody else. It was seized by the federal government and and sold to settlers. And that land um, should be returned because because reservations were were originally by treaty retained by native communities and, and, um, and, and they ought to have, um, self, uh, determination over those lands. So in that place, so in that case, what I think about is a land, um, buyback program where native peoples would be able and empowered to buy that land back. And so the, the land that I live on right now, I live on a, uh, a, a private, a ranch that's 120 acres on the Yakima Reservation, and um, it should be purchased and returned. You know, and I think so. And I think we're talking about land return. That's what it is. How do we work together as a collective to 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 take that land and return it? Um, and so it feels really sort of you know easy to say, well, Sarah G, you know, you own that land. Why don't you just give it back? It's like, well. You know, I have a mortgage on it, like most Americans do. You know, I have a mortgage on that land. And, um, you know, if if I were to give it to um, the Yakima Nation, I don't have the money to pay off the mortgage, you know. And so I couldn't even uh, retain that mortgage and pay rent somewhere else. I just don't, I can't afford it. So what what would it mean to buy back that land and return it? Because it's it it is the land of uh, the Yakima people. It's their homeland, which means it's their connection to um, to the Creator. It's their connection to their cosmology and their understanding of the world, and it it needs to be returned. I'm aware that John Stace uh, said recently that, you know, he's involved with it. So it's a Lakota tribe, correct? Yeah. You know, that really the, that, that tribe should not be responsible for raising the money to, to buy back the land. So, um, you know, I, I think he and other, he, I think he sees that as, part of his responsibility to basically do the fundraising to help get money that can be given to that, to that tribe to buy back any land that they can. That guess, so I guess I would say like how, because it, it does also seem unfair to me to say to all these different tribes, Hey, just fundraise, you know, several gazillion dollars and then uh, you can buy the land back. Right. And so I think, I can think of a couple of different ways that that could happen. I mean, that request to ask Native tribes to buy their land back is really an unfair thing because all of their wealth was seized. Their land was taken. So so how would they then do that. It doesn't make any sense. It's like, it's like saying to, you know, anyway, it's, it it is asking a, uh, a um, historically disenfranchised group to, um, to somehow come up with money in a capitalist system. And that's, it's just not, it's it's illogical to to request that. So there are a couple of ways that land buyback can occur. One is through private individuals, um, people in the church structure working together to buy land and return it. And another is to um, petition the federal government to, to buy that land back. Right. 
And I'm going to, both are necessary, but I'm also going to say the latter would probably have a bigger impact. Well, I, yeah, I mean, it would be great to, to begin. So those people who are listening, if you want to, to begin, let's begin together and figure out how we would do that. Yeah. Okay. There's much more to be said about that, but should we move on to our next question? Okay. Here's the next question. If Walt, if Disney came to you and said, we want to make our next movie inspired by an, by an Indian story, what one would you pick? Oh my gosh. That's a great question. Um, yeah. Um, Terrific. Um, yeah. I mean, I think that often in our, in our stories and in, in the dominant culture in the United States, we choose to tell this story about if we're going to talk about um, a, a minority group or if we're going to talk about uh, a, a people, a sovereign people, we want to tell the story about how they interacted with people, members of the dominant <laughs> Yeah, right. How do they interact with white people like me? Yeah. Does it actually just be about me, really, in the end? Yeah. So it's like, hey, who's yeah. So so to me, what would be awesome, it would be a a a Disney story of resistance. So for example, the Pueblo people, which is the people that I'm from, um, who who uh formed uh resistance um towards the Spanish when the Spanish originally came and colonized. Um that would be an awesome story, a story of a people who um collaborated together and refused um to cede their land. I mean, that would be such a wonderful story to see, um, especially if if like Dis- many Disney movies that were made into a musical. That would be how fun would that be? to see. Well, um, and that's, that's, you know, I lived in New Mexico and it's my understanding that many of the Pueblo people there are still on their ancestral homelands. Is that yeah. true? Oh yes. And of course, um, the Pueblo people, like many indigenous people never ceded their lands. That doesn't mean that they were able to retain all of their lands. Um, much of their land was seized, um, especially, um, to develop nuclear power during World War II. And in a variety of different ways, land seized for um, national parks, land seized for ranching and settlement, but they never ceded their territory. That, that is to say, they never chose to sell it to the federal government. And I think that, you know, one of the things that um, is really crucial for me is, um, you know, survival itself as a source of as a, as a source of resistance, as just a, a movement of resistance to survive and retain your sense of self and your people. Um, on the land uh, of your people. Um, you, you know, often we talk about um, the land being the, uh, the you know, the soil is made of our ancestors. Um, it, is, it is a crucial sense of reality, the center of our cosmology. So anyway, I would love to see a story about that, you know, through the lens of, of an indigenous protagonist. Um, uh, about, uh, through, you know, through the worldview of indigenous people. Another one that I would love to see and would maybe be a little more contemporary would be um, uh, a story of a young woman um, resisting the pipeline and uh, defending, defending her people um, uh, around uh, um protecting the sacred waters. So it's also, um, we understand that, that the role of women is to protect the sacred waters of our lands. And so that's why I think of a female protagonist, um, stepping up and doing that, you know, and doing that with, um, with love and commitment, um, which is how so many women are joining together now 
to protect their their native waters, um, their their sacred waters, both um, here in the United States and also in Canada. And Idle No More, I mean, Idle No More would be a, an amazing story of resistance um, where women and men also join together um, to resist um, the pollution of their um, of their homelands. Well, Disney executives, if you're hearing this, you have your marching orders now. Oh yeah, and I, I mean, I think if you know, it might feel controversial, but it isn't. If if you spend time with Native people in the in the actions of resistance, that is a life giving, amazing thing to be a part of, rooted in spirituality and love for community and the earth. Oh yeah, I mean. Every white person I know who went to Standing Rock was blown away by the spiritual nature of the whole resistance. And I know when I've participated in marches or protests or actions in San Francisco, whenever they have been Indigenous-led, they, to me, feel like they they are coming from a true place of spirit as opposed to what sometimes feels like just, I don't know, uh, something that feels sometimes very, I, I, I hate to say this, but a little bit violent. It feels a kind of like, um, like an F the system, you suck kind of feeling. <laughs> and I've never experienced that in an indigenous led action. It's felt like it's grounded in something very deep and very spiritual. That's also very physical and material at the same time, if mm -hmm. that makes sense. Sure enough, grounded in, in the earth, right, the, center, exactly. the center of our world and exactly. worldview. Yes, exactly. All right. So there's a bunch of questions that to me feel pretty connected. I don't know, should I just dump them all on you at once? Or do you want to go one by one? Oh, yeah, let's go one at a time. Okay. So doesn't federal aid form an unhealthy dependency between the government and Indians? So I think, I think it might be helpful just for people even to know what federal, what federal aid this is, is being referred to here. Well, you might not know, but whatever you, however you want to interpret that. Yeah. So I do want to begin by talking about um, the, the federal obligations towards Native people. And so, um, and this is not aid. This is um, uh, treaty. These are obligations that are defined by treaty and um, codified in the law. So, for example, if if Sherry, if you were to enter into a contract with me, and you said, Sarah, if you give me, um, if you if you give me. Um, <sighs> all of your land, then I will give you medical care for the rest of your life. And we formed a contract that said that. Um, then if I gave you all of my land, you would not be giving me aid by paying my medical bills. Right. Okay. So that's the situation of treaties. So native peoples enter into treaties with, with the federal government and, and they're not all the same because each treaty is a separate contract. It's a contract with the federal government. It's a legal document. Um, and that is an obligation. It is not aid. And I would say it's not dependency. Um, what it is, is an obligation that was written into law, into federal law, um, because the, the native people 
um, uh, said we will we will move off of the lands that you're demanding, um, and in return you are going to provide you know uh, w- what you are obligated to provide to us so that we can live without that land. Okay, so often that that includes medical care. Um, or access to medical care. So I don't mean health insurance. I mean, there's a whole agency um, called, you know, Indian Health. Um, it, it, in the, in, uh, it, at, during the time of settlement, it was also in the form of commodity goods, which would be flour and oil um, and other foodstuffs, dry foodstuffs. Um, and so uh, there are services that are, that are provided um, by obligation. So that's my they're, response. They're to basically that. payment. It's like we mm-hmm. agree to pay you for this land in a way you through these mechanisms, and yeah. So the next question I think is probably very closely related to that one. Do per annums, that is federal annual payments, just give Native people money to blow on drugs once a year? Yeah, so so I think the nature of that question is really related to the understanding, um, to an uh, to uh, a, an understanding of um, Native people as having no um, self determination or viewing them as a dependent. So so for example, um, once again, if if you said to me, Sarah, I want to buy all of your land. And instead of giving you a lump sum today, I'm going to pay you, I'm going to divide this up into X number of payments, and I'm going to pay you um, for the rest of your life in these payments that we agree upon. <clears throat> Would you, Sherry, have um, the right to determine how I spend that money? Uh, no. <laughs> right. So this idea that per annums are somehow like um, Santa Claus coming to give you know candy to the little children no, th- these are these are when when they are cash payments, they are obligatory by law um, as payment uh, for the loss or of land or for land that's been ceded. And so, the reason um, that this this agreement has been entered into is because the the federal government, when they made the treaty, understood that that taking away the land was depriving a people of all. Of their wealth, yeah, and so um, they are providing compensation for the loss of that wealth, and often um, uh, payments that are made to native tribes go towards um, a bulk of what they're used for is to provide services to that tribe, which includes, you know, all the services a government would provide: law enforcement, um, uh, uh, child and maternal health. Um, social services, et cetera. And then um, the, tri- the, the community together determines or the tribal government determines it, if there will be um, per annums and if so, at, at what level. Because the assumption is that um, those tribal members benefit from that because they've been deprived of their wealth right. in land. Right. Deprived of their ability to, um, to make a living on the land that was lost. Right. 
And then the other thing I want to say is uh, tribes also provide per annums um, to their members based on um, because of um, economic um, endeavors they have on their own land. And so that is to say that has nothing to do with the federal government. It just has to do with the tribe um, has a, a, some kind of economic engine. And then they'll take the surplus and, and distribute that as per annums also. And so and that could include, um, for example, um, a casino. And so once again, if they're distributing that money, um, it, it is fundamentally uh, opposed to self-determination to believe that you can tell people how to spend the money that that is their due. Well, then that is definitely leading into our next question, which is, are casinos bad or good? Hmm. Yeah, I find this, I, I hear this question quite a lot too. And once again, Sherry, you know, and listeners, I can tell you my point of view. You know, I obviously don't speak for all of Native America. I can only speak for myself. But I, I do, I want to just um, for a moment say that, that Native American communities had access to um, a life way or a different way of saying that would be to an economy that worked uh, for them. So for example, you know, the people, my people um, had sheep and, and also um, were, were um, farmers and grew corn and that was uh, access to an economy um, or um, access to a living. And when that was removed, no longer had access to, to that living. And so I want to talk about that economy for a moment because in the indigenous worldview or cosmology, there's much more of a sense of, of collectivism and less of a sense of individualism. So, so, so this idea of um, access to an economy was much more practiced um, through collective uh, collective decision making and sort of collective an understanding of of the well being of the collective over the individual. So so with colonization and settlement, the United States uh, is a capitalist society, and um, you have a, a, a many societies of people who are thrust into a capitalist economy without land or wealth to participate in that. And th the casino has been an option to engage in capitalism, which I want to just point out is the economic system that is available to us all, uh, every American. So I think the question of whether casinos are bad or good is sort of beside the point. They are access to a, to a living within the, the, the context of a capitalist society. And the fact that Native people, many of them, many Native tribes who have casinos, the fact that they then take that endeavor and, and share the, the outcome of that with the entire people um, is sort of a collectivist response to a capitalist uh, system. Um, so, I mean... I mean, I think it's kind of a funny question um, whether I think maybe the question is, is gambling bad or good? I mean, I feel like that's a moral question, but but irrelevant in the context of capitalism. Um, I think it's kind of interesting because I think Native people are um, sort of uh, criticized for not 
assimilating or participating in, in what we think of as capitalism or good, you know, being good citizens, you know, living in private homes, mowing the lawn, <laughs> you know, and so on. And then at the same time, participating in capitalism or criticized for that as well. So it, it's kind of, you know, if, if you're going to, if, if you're going to have a casino and then you're going to participate in capitalism, that's also criticized. So, you know, what, it, it just feels like it's, it's not, it's a lose, lose situation. Like there's, there's no way to, um, to, uh, to prove your, uh, your worth, I think in that conversation. Right. Okay. Next question. A friend has asked me to support resisting the line three pipeline, but I know Indians who want the pipeline Shouldn't I wait for indigenous people to come to consensus before I get involved? Hmm. Yeah, I mean, I've heard this too, and, and not just about the pipeline, but about quite a lot of things. Um, so, and 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 I think I think um, one way I want to think about this is just for a moment. Let's just if you if you'll just um, if you'll just go with me into. Um, a thought experiment. Imagine, you know, I live in Washington state. So imagine if I were to say, well, gee, you know, in Washington state, we're talking about, you know, these environmental um, conservation measures. And I just don't know that I can get behind that until the white people agree. You know, the white people can't seem to make up their minds about whether they want that or not. So I'm just going to not get involved until I can tell what the white people want to do. <laughs> I don't know, Sherry. I think it I could would never happen. There would never be agreement ever, ever, ever. Yeah, but, I mean, I could make this racist statement and say, well, white people just don't know what they want. You know, they just can't make up their minds. They're just, you know, they're just, it's, they're just riddled with corruption. That's why they can't agree on anything. No, they're just, they just, they defeat their own purpose because they can't, you know, they can't work together because that's how white people are. Right. Well, I mean, that we know that's not true. The reason that white people don't all agree on anything is because there's a diversity of views and a diversity of interests, right? I mean, there are people, humans with different values and different needs and, and different stages of their life and different occupations. Of course, they're not all going to agree. They're, they're a diverse population. In the state of Washington, where I live, we have 29 federally recognized tribes. Those are just the tribes that are federally recognized. 29. <laughs> um, each one has its own language, its own society, its own community, its own understanding of the world. The idea that they would all agree is ridiculous. I mean, all of the individuals within one tribe don't agree. Why? Because they are diverse. Because they are, they're not uh, monolithic, of course, like all human populations. And so this idea that we want to wait for, for, um, people of color to agree on a thing before we can get behind it is, isn't it self, uh, kind of a discriminatory attitude, you know, right. I mean, um, we, we have to accept the diversity and, and the brilliance and the vibrancy within every community. Um, and I guess I would just also say during the civil rights movement, of course, the civil rights movement is ongoing, but in, in the time we think of as a civil rights movement, um, leading up to um, integration in the United States. There were many Africans, Americans who uh, did not support that movement. And it wasn't because they didn't want rights. Um, it was because they, you know, all different reasons. Some of them were because there were shopkeepers who wanted to keep um, their shops from being um, 
from being looted during riots. Some people, because they were afraid um, that um, it was just kind of making trouble and was going to cause additional lynching. So they were afraid of violence that might occur. And so, you know, there were many people who, who weren't, you know, out. I mean, of course, in every movement, there are the activists that are out on the front lines and you hope the whole society will benefit, but there's going to be a diversity of opinions about a thing. So I, I guess what I want to say is that um, if you're trying to decide whether to support um, Indigenous people's movements, that is a conversation that needs to happen with your conscience to determine what your values are and what your interests are and what the spirit of life is telling you, what you see um, in terms of your own moral compass is motivating you and make that decision according to your own conscience rather than to try and um, pass the buck onto, uh, you know, indigenous people, you know, choosing the most vulnerable people to blame for your own inaction. Mm. Yeah, that's, I really appreciate you saying that last part, Sarah. I think that's so important. Um, And I mean, I've heard you say that before about basically use your own conscience and sense of, of justice and what's right. But I just love that last thing you said of like, don't put, don't excuse your inaction by putting it on the most vulnerable people and asking them to somehow all magically agree with each other, which, you know, there's this great saying that I heard from a Jewish friend of mine who said, you know, when, when you have a three Jewish people in a room, there's going to be eight different opinions. I mean, (laughs) you know, we're not even, we're not even in agreement with ourselves. So how do we, how are we in agreement with each other? So here's, oh, I'm sorry, go ahead. That sounds like a human trait to me. It's very human. So, and now here is the last question, which is clearly the most important. And I say that as someone who grew up in Ohio, (laughs) what about the Cleveland Indians? Oh dear. I love it, Sherry. Oh my gosh, you saved the best for last. Okay, yeah. um, nothing tricky or politically fraught about this question. Hey, <laughs> so um, so here's the thing. You know, it, 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 I think we we tend to, as a society, get stuck on questions like this, and 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 it becomes symbolic of the whole thing. You know, do we dismiss the valid interests of indigenous people and their their call for? Um, for uh, self-determination and for the the self-determination to protect their own waters and to control their own economic development. We kind of hang it on a question like this, you know, whether whether the Cleveland Indians should be able to keep their um, their name and their um Oh, their logo. Chief Wahoo. Chief Wahoo is the, is the chief. Yeah, chief. Is, whether they, whether they chief able to Wahoo. keep Chief Wahoo, their mascot. Yeah, their mascot, right. Well, anyway, you know, I, I guess what I want to say is similar kind of thing, um, which is, hey, you know, in New York, we wouldn't we wouldn't have a, 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 a sports team that's called the New York Jews. I mean, that's just not something we would do. Um, and I think, you know, the reason is because, you know, it, it feels creepy to, 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 to look at a historically disenfranchised group, um, and, and call a sports team after them, you know, make a mascot, make a mascot out of them. (laughs) Yeah. What would it be? And I'm, I'm not going to make any suggestions. I'm just saying it would, no matter what it is, you know, it would be wrong. Like you could not make a team like that. 
you know? And so it's kind of a similar idea. Like we don't, it's just not, it's not a nice thing to do. And so it's not a nice thing to do. It's insensitive, but more importantly, it's disrespectful. You know, you're, you are, um, uh, well, I guess the mascot in general is sort of exaggerating, uh, features. It's, it's diminishing, uh, the importance of, of a, a sovereign people. And, um, you know, and it's sort of making a joke out of it, which is, you know, it's just not very nice. It's also not the most important thing um, on the plate for indigenous people and their rights, but it is emblematic of something important. Yeah, right. Well, thank you so much, Sarah. We have questions that we haven't even had a chance to get to yet. And I would also say that if you all want to send in more questions, we will put something in the show notes indicating how you can do that. Awesome. I love hearing from you. Thanks for your questions. I'm so happy to answer them. Here's the opportunity. Do it anonymously. No one will never know you asked. Um, and you can get a straight answer to your question. I will not say your name on air. Well, Great. maybe I won't even know your name. So there we go. <laughs> exactly. All right. Well, thank you, Sarah. Oh, Sherry. Thank you. This is so fun. This podcast is hosted by us co-produced by the DDFD Coalition and Anabaptist World. The opinions expressed here are ours, however, and do not reflect official positions of Anabaptist World. For more information, go to anabaptistworld.org and dofdmeno.org. Our theme music is by Micah Peplo and Shannon Kaler. Thank you. Thank you.